Salvation Outside the Church, Tracing the History of the Catholic Response by Francis A. Sullivan, S.J., Chapter 3, St. Augustine and His Followers. There are several reasons for devoting a chapter of this book to the teaching of St. Augustine. The first is the massive influence that he has had on the history of Christian thought, including that on the possibility of salvation for people who die outside the church. Then there is the complexity of his teaching, especially with regard to the church and its necessity for salvation. As we shall see, one also has to take into account the nature of the controversy in which his statements were made. Augustine's literary career spanned a period of 40 years, 390 to 430, equally divided between the first 20 years of controversy with the Donatists and the latter 20 with the Pelagians. On some issues, there is a significant difference between the position he took in the earlier period and what he said in the later. We shall consider first what St. Augustine said about salvation for those who lived before Christ, then what he said about Christian heretics and schismatics, and finally his views on the possibility of salvation for the non-Christians of his day. On salvation for those who lived before the coming of Christ. We have already seen that the early fathers spoke in quite positive terms about the possibility of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles who had lived before the coming of Christ. As is so often the case, St. Augustine followed the traditional view, but he added a new depth with his personal interpretation of it. He expressed his mind on this question most fully in a letter which he wrote to a priest named Diogratias, who had asked him for help in answering objections which some pagans were making to the Christian religion. One of these ran, why did he who was called the Savior hide himself for so many ages? What became of the souls of the Romans or Latins who were deprived of the grace of Christ until the time of the Caesars when he finally came? Augustine's answer was as follows. When we say that Christ is the word of God, through whom all things were made, we say also that he is the Son of God, co-eternal with the Father, the unchangeable wisdom by whom the whole universe was created and who becomes the happiness of every rational soul. Therefore, from the beginning of the human race, all those who believed in him and knew him and lived a good and devout life according to his commands, whenever and wherever they lived, undoubtedly were saved by him. From the beginning of the human race, sometimes obscurely, sometimes openly, as it seemed to his providence to suit the times, he did not cease to prophesy, and before he appeared in the flesh, there were not lacking men to believe in him, from Adam to Moses, among the people of Israel, which by divine ordinance was the prophetic race, and among other peoples. In the sacred books of the Hebrews, there is mention of many from the time of Abraham, who were not of his stock nor of the people of Israel, nor were they joined by any chance alliance to the people of Israel, yet were partakers in his worship. So why should we not believe that sometimes there were other men, here and there among other races, who were worshippers of him, 
although we do not find mention of them in the same sacred books. The saving grace of this religion, the only true one, through which alone true salvation is truly promised, has never been refused to anyone who was worthy of it, and whoever lacked it was unworthy of it. From the beginning of human history to the end, this is made known for the reward of some and the punishment of others. And that is why it is not made known at all to some, because it was foreknown that they would not believe. Yet it is also made known to some who will not believe, as a warning to the former. In this answer to the question put to him by Dio Gratias, we find several of Augustine's convictions with regard to the divine economy of salvation. First, salvation has always been through faith in Christ and worship of him. This alone is the true religion. However, this religion has always been available to those who were worthy of it. Even those not of the Hebrew race received some obscure but sufficient revelation of it. If such revelation was not made to some, it was because God foreknew that they would not believe if it were made to them. Hence, they were responsible for their ignorance of it. Augustine drew further conclusions from the principles just mentioned. One was that all those who have ever lived justly have been saved by their faith in Christ, have had Christ as their head, and have been members of his body. Thus, the body of Christ consists of all the just, beginning with Abel, the first man to die in the friendship of God. Altogether, we are members of Christ and are his body, and not we who are in this place only, but throughout the world, and not at this time only, but, what shall I say, from Abel the just man until the end of time, as long as men beget and are begotten, whoever among the just made his passage through this life, whether now, that is, not in this place, but in the present life, or in generations to come, all the just are this one body of Christ, and individually his members. St. Augustine was not the first to propose the idea of the church as pre-existing the coming of Christ. Origen, among others, had spoken along these lines before him. But Augustine was the first to describe all the just, from the beginning to the end of the world, as constituting the Ecclesia ab Abel, the church beginning with Abel. Of primary interest for our topic is the fact that St. Augustine saw Gentiles, as well as Jews, before the coming of Christ, as members of that church of the just. Augustine's City of God also began with Abel and included all those who had lived in the world with careful concern not to offend God and had avoided sin. Here again we see Augustine's recognition of the availability of salvation for all who had lived justly before the coming of Christ. At the same time, we have to keep in mind Augustine's conviction that no one had ever been saved except through faith in Christ, the one mediator of salvation. He does not give a very satisfying explanation of how Gentiles could have arrived at such faith. It would seem that he simply concluded from the same premise that they must have had faith in Christ in order to be saved, that it must have been available to them. While Augustine recognized that some kind of obscure faith in Christ could have been sufficient during the pre-Christian era, 
He was absolute in his conviction that once the gospel had been preached and the church had been established, there was no possibility of salvation without Orthodox Christian faith and membership in the true church, which for him was the Catholica, the worldwide church in communion with Rome. This conviction led him to express his full agreement with the principle already laid down by Cyprian and the earlier fathers. No Salvation for Christian Heretics and Schismatics The key to understanding Augustine's rigorous exclusion of Christian heretics and schismatics from salvation is his identification of the communion, which is the bond of unity in the Catholica, with the virtue of charity. From this, he concluded that anyone who had broken with this communion was guilty of grave sin against charity and would remain in that state of sin until he was reunited with the Catholic Church. Here are some of the consequences which he drew from these premises. Whoever is separated from this Catholic Church by this single sin of being severed from the unity of Christ, no matter how estimable a life he may imagine he is living, shall not have life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. The love of which the Apostle says, the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us, is a love which those do not have who are cut off from the communion of the Catholic Church. And for this reason, even though they should speak with the tongues of men and angels, it profits them nothing. For that person does not have the love of God who does not love the unity of the Church. And from this one rightly understands that the Holy Spirit is not received anywhere but in the Catholic Church. Elsewhere, Augustine puts this more succinctly, saying, The enemy of unity has no share in divine love. Consequently, those who are outside the Church do not have the Holy Spirit. Augustine did not agree with Cyprian's view that baptism and other sacraments administered in a heretical or schismatic sect would be simply invalid. On the other hand, he agreed with Cyprian that they would not confer the Holy Spirit or his gifts of grace, for the reason that those receiving them were blocking the reception of grace by their persistence in schism, which he saw as grave sin against charity. Thus he insisted, when a person is baptized in some heretical or schismatic group outside the communion of the church, his baptism is of no profit to him, inasmuch as he gives his consent to the perversity of those heretics or schismatics. An even more emphatic statement of this position is the following passage of one of Augustine's sermons in which, referring to a Donatist bishop, he said, Outside the church, he can have everything except salvation. He can have honor. He can have sacraments. He can sing alleluia. He can respond with amen. He can have the gospel. He can hold and preach the faith in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But nowhere else than in the Catholic Church can he find salvation. Finally, Augustine insists that even if a member of a heretical sect were to suffer martyrdom, this would not save him. Nor will his baptism be of any benefit to the heretic if, while outside the church, he were put to death for confessing Christ. This is altogether true. The fact of dying outside the church proves that he did not have charity.
In our modern ecumenical age, we no doubt are inclined to think St. Augustine unreasonably harsh in judging everyone who belonged to a separated Christian group as sharing in the guilt of schism, and thus is living in a state of grave sin against charity. One might well ask whether he did not recognize the difference between the people who caused the rupture of ecclesial communion in the first place and those who, perhaps without personal fault, belonged to the separated group in subsequent generations. As a matter of fact, Augustine did recognize the difference between them, but in his eyes, while the latter group sinned less grievously than the former, they were still guilty of grave sin. Here is his judgment on the case. Those who, out of ignorance, are baptized there in a schismatic group, thinking it to be the Church of Christ, commit a less grievous sin in comparison with those guilty of initiating the schism. And yet, they also are wounded by the sacrilege of schism. One cannot say that they are not gravely hurt by it on the grounds that others are more gravely hurt. The question remains whether Augustine admitted the possibility that some Christians belonging to separated groups might be in such good faith that they could be saved outside the Catholic Church. A passage that seems to favor this view is found in a letter which he wrote to several Donatists. There he said, The Apostle Paul said, As for a man that is a heretic, after admonishing him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him. But those who maintain their own opinion, however false and perverted, without obstinate ill will, especially those who have not originated the error by bold presumption, but have received it from parents who had been led astray and had lapsed, those who seek the truth with careful industry and are ready to be corrected when they have found it, are not to be rated among heretics." Does Augustine mean that such people can be saved outside the Catholic Church? The context of the letter shows that what he had in mind was to defend himself against the accusation that in writing this letter, he was disobeying the scriptural injunction to have nothing to do with heretics. In other words, he was saying that the men to whom he was writing this letter were not the kind of heretics with whom a Christian must have nothing to do. On the other hand, later passages of the same letter show that he was far from optimistic about their chances of salvation if they remained in their sects. On the contrary, that he saw them in danger of losing their souls is clear from his warning. It is not a question of danger to your gold or silver, your land or your farms, or even your bodily health. We are calling on your souls to grasp eternal life and avoid everlasting death. His final words to them are even stronger. God sees that nothing forces you to remain in that pestilential and sacrilegious state of schism. You can be freed of it if, for the sake of gaining a spiritual kingdom, you would overcome a worldly attraction, and if, for the sake of avoiding eternal punishments, you would not fear to offend the friendship of men which will profit you nothing in the judgment of God. St. Augustine's way of speaking of some people as being apparently inside, but really outside, and of others as being apparently outside, but really inside the church, has led some to conclude that he admitted the possibility that some people who were separated from the Catholic Church might nevertheless be enjoying the friendship of God and on the way to salvation. 
However, for Augustine, this distinction is based on the foreknowledge of God, as is clear from the following passage. There are some of that number, of those who will be saved, who at present are living sinful lives, or are even wallowing in heresies or in pagan superstitions. And yet, even there, the Lord knows who are his own. For, in that ineffable foreknowledge of God, many who seem to be outside are really inside, and many who seem to be inside are outside. Furthermore, Augustine was convinced that if anyone who was now outside by reason of heresy or schism was inside by reason of God's foreknowledge, that person would inevitably be joined to the Catholic Church before he or she died. But if it be the case that some of those people, presently separated, belong to us in the hidden foreknowledge of God, it is necessary that they should return to us. How many who do not belong to us still seem to be within, and how many who do belong to us still seem to be outside? The Lord knows who are his own. And those who are within, but do not belong to us, when the occasion presents itself, will go out. And those who belong to us, but are now outside, when they find the occasion, will return. While it goes against our ecumenical sensibilities, we have to recognize the fact that St. Augustine held out little hope for the salvation of any Christian who died in a state of separation from the Catholic Church. As we shall now see, he held out even less hope for the salvation of those who, in his day, had still not accepted Christian faith and baptism. No Salvation for Jews and Pagans as we have seen, St. Augustine was convinced that even during the pre-Christian era, there had been no salvation except through faith in Christ. Needless to say, he was all the more convinced that this was true now that the gospel had been preached and the church established. Augustine applied with total rigor the text of Mark sixteen fifteen to 16 Go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Augustine was convinced that those who had heard the message of the gospel and had not become Christians must be guilty of sinful rejection of the faith and of the church in which alone salvation could be found. Their damnation would be the result of their misuse of their free will, as we see in the following passage. God wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth but not in such a way that he takes away their free will, whose good or bad use brings upon them a just judgment. Hence, unbelievers act against the will of God when they do not believe in the gospel message. They do not triumph over it, but rather they defraud themselves of a great, indeed, of the greatest good, and involve themselves in great evils. They have to experience in suffering the power of him whose mercy and gifts they have contemned. As one might expect, Augustine numbered unconverted Jews among those guilty of contemning the mercy and gifts of God by their refusal to accept Christian faith. While exhorting his flock to show great love for the Jews, he left no doubt as to his judgment about the guilt of Jews who continued to reject Christ. Dearly beloved, whether the Jews receive these divine testimonies with joy or with indignation, nevertheless, when we can, 
let us proclaim them with great love for the Jews. Let us not proudly glory against the broken branches. Let us rather reflect by whose grace it is, and by much mercy, and on what root we have been engrafted. Then, not savoring of pride, but with a deep sense of humility, not insulting with presumption, but rejoicing with trembling, let us say, Come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord, because his name is great among the Gentiles. If they hear and obey, there will be among them to whom the scripture says, Come ye to him and be enlightened, and your faces shall not be confounded. If, however, they hear and do not obey, if they see and are jealous, they are among them of whom the psalm says, The wicked shall see and shall be angry. He shall gnash his teeth and pine away. No salvation for unbelievers, even for those who had no chance to hear the gospel preached. We have seen in the previous chapter that toward the end of the 4th century, there was a rather general belief among Christians that by now everyone had had a chance to hear the gospel, so that no unbeliever could escape condemnation on the grounds of inculpable ignorance of the Christian faith. It would seem that in his earlier period, Augustine may have shared this view. However, at a certain point in his career, he became aware of the fact that there were still tribes in Africa, beyond the limits of the Roman Empire, to whom the gospel had not yet been preached. In other words, he had become aware of the existence of large numbers of people who had still had no opportunity to come to Christian faith. He spoke of this in a letter which he wrote to assure a bishop that the end of the world was not imminent since the gospel had not yet been preached in the whole world. He wrote, Here in our own land, that is, in Africa, there are countless barbarian tribes among whom the gospel has not been preached. We have daily evidence of this from the captives who are brought from there and are now subjected to slave labor by the Romans. In another letter to the same bishop, Augustine spoke of areas of the world that had not been explored, so that it was impossible to say how many nations there might be to whom the gospel had not yet been preached. Much earlier than this, in his letter to Deo Gratias, referring to Gentiles who might have had no chance to come to saving faith, Augustine insisted that no one lacked this opportunity who was worthy of it, and that if God refused it to anyone, it was because he foresaw that if it were offered, the person would refuse it. In other words, Augustine's earlier solution was to lay the blame on the individual for the fact that the opportunity to come to faith was not given to him. In his later anti-Pelagian period, Augustine proposed a new solution to this problem, namely that the universally contracted guilt of original sin was sufficient to justify God in condemning not only infants who died without baptism, but also adults who died in ignorance of the Christian faith. There is good reason to believe that it was his effort to reconcile the exclusion of these two categories of people from salvation with the justice of God that led St. Augustine to his theory about the consequences of original sin for the whole human race. St. Augustine was firmly convinced that those who were outside the church through lack of faith and baptism could not be saved, and he knew of no alternative between salvation and condemnation to hell. It was only centuries later that the idea of limbo for infants dying unbaptized would gain currency. 
In Augustine's view, such infants, excluded from salvation for lack of baptism, must be in hell to suffer, as he put it, the mildest punishment of all. Reflecting on what he understood to be the certainty that infants dine without baptism and adults dine in ignorance of the Christian faith must certainly be damned, Augustine came to the conclusion that if God is just in condemning such as these, it must follow that he would be just if he were to condemn the whole human race to hell. The guilt that would justify God if he chose to do this could only be the guilt of original sin. And thus Augustine arrived at his idea that all the descendants of Adam constitute a massa damnata, deserving to be condemned to hell, so that if some are spared, it is by the sheer mercy of God. Here are two examples of Augustine's thinking on this matter. Now, this grace of Christ, without which neither infants nor adults can be saved, is not given in return for merits, but is a free gift. For this reason it is called grace. Wherefore, all those who are not set free by that grace, whether because they could not hear the message of the gospel, or because they refused to obey it, or being unable to hear it because of their infancy, they did not receive that baptismal bath by which they could have been saved. All these, I say, are justly damned, because they are not without sin. Either the original sin that they contracted, or the sins that they added by their own wicked deeds, the entire mass, therefore, incurs the penalty. And if the deserved punishment of condemnation were meted out to all, it would without doubt be justly meted out. Anyone who judged rightly could not possibly blame the justice of God in wholly condemning all mankind. If, as truth itself tells us, no one is delivered from the condemnation that we incurred through Adam except through faith in Jesus Christ, and yet, those people will not be able to deliver themselves from that condemnation who will be able to say that they have not heard the gospel of Christ, since faith comes through hearing. Therefore, neither those who have never heard the gospel, nor those who by reason of their infancy were unable to believe, are separated from that mass which will certainly be damned. Augustine's Interpretation of the Salvific Will of God a further consequence of Augustine's reasoning about the certain damnation of infants dying without baptism and adults dying in ignorance of the Christian faith was that he did not see how it could be true that God wills that all be saved. His concept of the will of God was that it must always be efficacious. That is, whatever God truly wills must necessarily happen as he wills it. Since Augustine was sure that these infants and adults would not be saved, he did not see how God could be said to will their salvation. This led him to interpret 1 Timothy 2, 4, who wishes all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, in such a way as to deny that God willed the salvation of those who Augustine was certain would not be saved. Here is one of his explanations of that text. In the words, who wishes all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, the all means the many whom he wishes to come to grace. It is much better to take it this way, because no one comes but those whom he wishes to come. No one can come to me, the Son says, unless the Father who sent me draw him, 
and no one can come to me unless it be given him by my Father. Therefore, all are saved and come to the knowledge of the truth at his willing it, and all come at his willing it. For those such as infants who do not as yet have the use of free will are regenerated by the will of him through whose creative power they are generated. And those who have the actual use of free will cannot exercise it except through the will and assistance of him by whom the will is prepared. If you ask me why he does not change the wills of all who are unwilling, I shall answer. Why does he not adopt through the bath of regeneration all infants who will die, whose wills are quiescent and therefore not contrary? If you found this too profound for you to investigate, it is profound for both of us in both aspects, namely, why, both in adults and in infants, God wishes to help one and does not help another. Nevertheless, we hold it to be certain and everlastingly firm that there is no injustice with God, so that he should condemn anyone who had done no wrong, and there is goodness with God by which he delivers many without personal merit. In those he condemns, we see what is due to all, so that those he delivers may thence learn what due penalty was relaxed in their regard and what undue grace was given them. Followers of Augustine Reaction against the more extreme elements of Augustine's anti-Pelagian theology led some Catholics, especially leaders of the monastic movement in southern France, to what has become known as semi-Pelagianism. While these people insisted that God's salvific will was truly universal and rejected the idea that God predestined some people to eternal damnation, they also agreed with St. Augustine on the absolute necessity of grace for salvation. However, they also insisted that the divine distribution of grace must correspond not simply to God's inscrutable choice, but also to the prior dispositions of the person, so that one could dispose oneself to receive grace, and thus merit the beginning of faith and salvation. This doctrine was rejected by the Council of Orange in 529. A faithful follower of Augustine, St. Prosper of Aquitaine in France, brought this to Augustine's attention toward the end of the latter's life, and then wrote against it himself. But Prosper showed himself capable of discerning between the essential doctrine of Augustine on the absolute primacy of grace, without which no human effort is capable of accomplishing any step toward salvation, and some of the consequences which Augustine thought must be drawn from this principle. For instance, Augustine thought that the principle of the absolute gratuitousness of grace meant that God must be free to deny the grace necessary for salvation to anyone who chooses, without any consideration of the personal merits of the person. He held that this denial of grace, having the inevitable consequence of eternal damnation, would be justified by the guilt of original sin which all mankind has inherited from Adam. It must be admitted that the idea of God's choice to deny the grace necessary for salvation without any consideration of the personal merits of the person, with the consequence of eternal damnation for that person so denied grace, comes awfully close to the idea of predestination to eternal damnation. Prosper's instincts were against such a concept, and to his credit he departed from his master on this point, 
while defending God's freedom to distribute his grace as he chose, Prosper insisted that God made a universal offer of general grace, while reserving special graces to those whom he chose to favor with such gifts. In this way, Prosper could defend the universal salvific will of God, expressed in the offer of general grace to all without exception. A work of this period, now generally attributed to Prosper of Aquitaine, is entitled The Call of All Nations. In this work, Prosper again and again insists that God sincerely wills that all should be saved, while admitting that the fate of infants dying without baptism remains an insoluble mystery which we can only leave to the wisdom and mercy of God. On the other hand, he clearly departs from Augustine's later solution to the problem of those who die as unbelievers because they have never had a chance to hear the gospel. On this question, Prosper's first principle is that Christ died not only for believers, but for unbelievers and sinners. There can be no reason to doubt that Jesus Christ our Lord died for the unbelievers and the sinners. If there had been anyone who did not belong to these, then Christ would not have died for all. But he did die for all men without exception. No one of the ungodly, who differed only in their degree of unbelief, could be saved without Christ's redemption. This redemption spread throughout the world to become the good news for all men without exception. However, Prosper was aware that in his own day there were still nations which had not yet had the opportunity to hear the good news of Christ's redemption. His solution to this problem is vastly different from that of Augustine. It may be true that, just as we know that in former times some peoples were not admitted to the fellowship of the sons of God, so also today there are in the remotest parts of the world some nations who have not yet seen the light of the grace of the Savior. But we have no doubt that in God's hidden judgment, for them also a time of calling has been appointed, when they will hear and accept the gospel which now remains unknown to them. Even now they receive that measure of general help which heaven has always bestowed on all men. Human nature, it is true, has been wounded by such a severe wound that natural speculation cannot lead a person to the full knowledge of God if the true light does not dispel all darkness from his heart. In his inscrutable designs, the good and just God did not shed this light as abundantly in the past ages as he does in our own day. For Prosper, the abundant light which provides the full knowledge of God is an insistence of the special grace which God freely bestows when and on whom he chooses. It is only since Christ came that this special grace has been granted to the Gentiles. The scriptures prove beyond doubt that the great wealth, power, and beneficence of grace, which in these last times calls all the Gentiles into the kingdom of Christ, was in former centuries hidden in the secret counsel of God. No knowledge can comprehend, no understanding can penetrate the reason why this abundance of grace, which has now come to the knowledge of all nations, was not revealed to them before. Yet we believe with complete trust in God's goodness that he wills all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This we must hold as his changeless will from eternity, which manifests itself in the different measures in which he, in his wisdom, chose to augment his general gifts with special favors. 
Thus, those who did not share in his grace plead guilty of malice, and those who were resplendent with its light cannot glory in their own merit, but only in the Lord. The last sentence here suggests that for Prosper, the general grace which the Gentiles received before the special grace of the light of the gospel was given to them was sufficient for their salvation, and that if they were condemned by God, it was due to their own malice, and not, as Augustine would say in his later works, to the inherited guilt of original sin. However, other followers of St. Augustine were not so discerning as Prosper of Aquitaine, one who followed Augustine to the last iota of his anti-Pelagian teaching and even expressed it in its most radical form, was a North African bishop like Augustine, Fulgentius of Ruspe, 468-533. Here is a passage of a work of Fulgentius entitled On the Truth of Predestination, which will show how faithfully he followed the lead of St. Augustine. If it were true that God universally willed that all should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, how is it that truth itself has hidden from some men the mystery of his knowledge? Surely, to those whom he denied such knowledge, he also denies salvation. Therefore, he willed to save those to whom he gave knowledge of the mystery of salvation, and he did not wish to save those to whom he denied the knowledge of the saving mystery. If he had intended the salvation of both, he would have given the knowledge of the truth to both. The following statement by Fulgentius was destined to enter into the history of our question in an extraordinary way, as it was incorporated into a decree of the Council of Florence in 1442. Most firmly hold, and by no means doubt, that not only all pagans, but also all Jews, and all heretics and schismatics who die outside the Catholic Church will go to the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. We conclude this chapter devoted to St. Augustine and his followers with the observation that, despite his enormous influence on the future of Christian thought, some of Augustine's views did not so prevail as to become part of the mainstream Christian tradition. One was his idea that God would condemn unbaptized infants to hell for the inherited guilt of original sin. Another was that, likewise for the guilt of original sin, God would justly condemn adults who had never had a chance to hear the gospel, and thus to make an act of saving faith. And a third was Augustine's conclusion that there were some people whom God simply did not wish to be saved. As we shall find in the next chapter, the mainstream Christian tradition found a better, if not ideal, solution to the problem of infants dying without baptism. It insisted that God would come to the aid of a person who was inculpably ignorant of the faith, and it took seriously the biblical assurance that God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. <laughs>